Um, but happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Uh, there's a, a woman that attends our church who she received a card yesterday, and uh, she was so excited to, uh, to, to receive it, and she showed it to me, and there's this beautiful poem in it, and uh, we're running a little short on time, so I'm not going to read the whole poem, but it, it starts by saying, you are a miracle. You are a miracle, and I truly believe that uh, mothers are a miracle, um, and I also recognize that this can be a complicated holiday for a lot of people. Um, some people who want to have kids but can't. Uh, some people who are just dealing with loss of a, of a loved one. So uh, we're, we're thinking of you and praying for you as well. But uh, to all the moms that are here, to those of you watching online, happy Mother's Day. Um, there's a decision that every expectant parent has to make at some point during the pregnancy. And that is if they want to find out what the sex of their baby is. And I understand the argument for not wanting to know. Uh, it's one of the few true surprises in this life. I, I get that. But for me, it was a very easy decision. And if you know me, you probably could guess what that decision is because I'm someone who likes to prepare. Uh, I'm someone who, like, I had the car seats in the car at 30 weeks pregnant, go bags packed, everything set up. I, I have a backup message right here in case my iPad uh, decides to stop working. I'm just someone who likes to prepare. So the answer for me was, yes, I want to know the sex of my child. And I want to know as soon as humanly possible. Uh, there's not a single part of me that want, wanted to be surprised. Uh, I'm just not that big on surprises in this life. My wife's usually like, here, just pick out what you want for your birthday, order it, because she knows I can be particular. So uh, thankfully, Danielle, she wanted to know as well. In fact, we wanted to know so bad that we went to one of those ultrasounds where you can find out a little early. Uh, they do one of those 3D images, and it's just a, a little bit clearer than what you get at a doctor's office. So uh, we went to one of these places to find out what the sex of our baby was. And I remember when we were sitting in the appointment, uh, I was just thinking back and forth what it would be like to have a son and what it would be like to have a daughter and just all these scenarios are going through my mind. And finally, the woman doing the ultrasound says, congratulations, you are having a girl. Uh, now I have to show you a few pictures because she's just so beautiful and I can't talk about her without showing. There she is, Eliana Rose. Again, she'll be two next month. There she is with our Great Dane puppy. Uh, that was kind of a mistake. Um, and then the third one, uh, that's us on Easter. But uh, we're just so blessed. She has completely stolen our hearts. Uh, but I still remember some of my first thoughts when the lady said, congratulations, you're having a girl. Uh, I don't know why, but one of the first things that popped into my mind was like, oh my goodness, she is going to go to prom one day. <laughs> Oh my goodness, she is going to get married one day. Like, how am I going to deal with these things? How am I going to talk to her future boyfriends and her future, like, I just, all these, like, scenarios started going through my mind. And then I'm starting to think, like, oh my gosh, will she be treated with respect? Will she be treated with dignity and be treated right as she's dating and she's older? And I mean, she's not even born yet. And I'm starting to think about how I'm going to afford a wedding one day for her. And my mind just went to all sorts of places, uh, just like, honestly, what women have to deal with that men don't have to deal with on a regular basis, and uh, just starting to fear for her of those things. And, I mean, you don't have to be a historian to know that women historically have not always been treated as equals to men. And I never really thought of that 
until the doctor said, congratulations, you are having a girl. And in that moment, uh, again, I was kind of overcome with fear, but I was also grateful in that moment. Not because our world is perfect, but because I was confident that our daughter was going to grow up in a world with a mother who is one of the most intelligent and strongest women I know. That she's going to grow up in a world with grandmas who are women of God who love her and will teach her her worth in this world. Knowing that she will grow up in a church that values the leadership of women, uh, that has women board members, uh, a denomination that ordains women. Uh, In our denomination, we have a superintendent and a bishop who are both women. My daughter gets to grow up in a world where she can do anything and be anything she wants. Will she have to fight occasionally and face some barriers? Probably. But her life will be surrounded by strong women and strong men who will fight alongside of her, continually point her to Jesus, and will always be there for her. And for that, I'm grateful. Uh, All that to say, I'm really excited about this series. uh, Because today we're starting a series called Women of the Bible. And Today, to kick off the series, I want to look at uh, one of my favorite stories of the Bible, Uh, one of my favorite books of the Bible, actually. It's a a story of a woman who had all the odds stacked against her, but put on a display of courage and perseverance and strength. And what I want to do is kind of walk through the story and pull out some lessons that we can apply to our lives today. And the woman of the Bible we're going to look at today is Queen Esther in the Old Testament. Now, to set the stage for the story, and uh, by the way, I I would encourage you to read the full story at some point this week. Uh, We're not going to get into every detail of the story, but there's just some fascinating things that happens in this book. It's only 10 short chapters. Uh, Again, it's fascinating. I, I think it's Hollywood material, the type of story that this is. But in chapter one of the book of Esther, uh, King Xerxes, who is the king of Persia, he's having a six-month-long party. Uh, that, that is a long party. I, like, I, I don't like parties that go over four hours. This is a six-month-long party, and in this party, it's basically a party to be drunk and to be drunk the whole time. Uh, King Xerxes is drunk most of this party. In fact, he's drunk most of this book. Uh, towards the end of this party, he wants his wife, Queen Vashti, to come to the party so he can show off her beauty to his guests. It's actually incredibly demeaning. Uh, Vashti, she refuses to attend, and and I I love the strength of Vashti in in this book. Sometimes she gets painted as like an antagonist or someone who's being disrespectful, but actually, I believe it's a sign of strength. Um, She refuses to go to the party, and uh, King Xerxes decides to divorce her over this, to get rid of his wife. And he begins the search for a new wife, and he holds a beauty pageant to find his new wife. And this is where Esther's story begins. Now, when it comes to success stories in life, I think our favorite ones tend to be the the ones where someone starts with nothing and then finds success in life. For example, uh, Steve Jobs. Love or hate Apple Uh, It is an incredible story that the company Apple started as two people in a garage and is now a $2 trillion company with 4,000 employees. It's an incredible success story. 
or a story like J.K. Rowling. Again, love or hate Harry Potter, it is an amazing story that this woman who was once on unemployment and welfare now has more money than the Queen of England. They're incredible stories, and these stories, uh, again, they're more intriguing when you start with nothing and then you make something of your life. Uh, That is how Queen Esther started. Esther was a Jewish woman who at this point in history, uh, the Jews were living in exile in Persia, uh, which meant that she would have been either extremely poor or possibly a slave girl. And we know that she was also an orphan. Uh, So starting in chapter 2, verses 5 and 7, it says, At that time there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, another one of the main characters in the story. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who is also known as Esther. And that's what she'll be referred to in the rest of the book. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. So we have Mordecai, who is her cousin, but is more like a father figure in her life. Uh, One of the first lessons we can pull from this story is this, is that God opportunities sometimes come by way of obstacles. God opportunities sometimes come by way of obstacles. Again, Esther was a poor orphan living in a foreign land. Everything was stacked against her. If there was a reason to feel hopeless about your future, Esther had that reason. Now, we aren't orphan slaves living in a foreign land, but I think we can relate on some level. I think we've all been in circumstances before where we see more obstacles than we see opportunities. Uh, How many of you have seen the movie Jaws at some point in your life? One of my favorite movies growing up, I think it was the first suspenseful suspenseful movie I've ever seen. And uh, I mean, what kid is not fascinated with sharks at a young age? Uh, But did you know that the movie Jaws was almost wildly different? When they were creating the movie, the plan was to push the limits on special effects for that time. Uh, So Steven Spielberg, the director of the movie, uh, he had this mechanical shark built for the movie. This shark was going to be the center of the movie. The shark cost $250,000 to build, which at that time was a lot of money for a prop for a movie. It was a 25-foot mechanical shark. And again, this was the center of the movie. But as they begin shooting, in the very first week of shooting, uh, the motor started to erode. They actually shot this movie in parts of the ocean rather than just a pool to make look like an ocean. So the salt water was causing the motor to erode. Every single uh, day after shooting, they had to drain this shark. They had to scrub it and then repaint the shark. Early on, something went wrong, and this $250,000 shark sank to the bottom of where they were shooting. And they were able to retrieve it, but they came to the realization that the plan was not working. It, it didn't look real. The shark had become an obstacle to the shark movie. And Steven Spielberg had to go back to the drawing board, and he famously said in an interview, he said, I had no choice but to figure out how to tell the story without the shark. So he went back to the drawing board and he figured out how to tell the story without ever seeing the full shark. You remember in Jaws 1, you never see the full shark. You see glimpses of it. 
at, towards the end, you see the head of the shark, but at no point do you ever see the full 25-foot shark. And uh, many of the scenes, they kind of pivoted in how they were shooting it. Many of the scenes, they weren't originally planned this way, but they ended up shooting from the perspective of the shark. So you don't even see the shark. And while shooting uh, Steven Spielberg, he realized that the story was even better this way. He came to the conclusion, and he said this in another quote. He said, it's what we don't see which is truly frightening. And I think that's true if you've seen suspenseful movies, maybe with monsters or aliens or something like that. When they get to the point where they actually show the alien, it's not that scary, right? It's what we don't see, which is truly frightening. And even today, all these years later, people still study this film and how he made this film and just studying his art form. See, some of us, I think we get paralyzed when there's an obstacle in front of us. We don't know uh, how to change plans on the go. Sometimes it, it seems like when things aren't going according to plan, that God maybe just isn't blessing us. Or maybe we don't have God's favor at this point. Uh, but here's a truth, and uh, I've found this to be true, is that a lot of God opportunities, they're not just handed to you. They require quite a bit of work. Thomas Edison once said, so many people miss opportunities because when opportunities show up, they're dressed in overalls and they look like work. So don't feel hopeless when you have obstacles in front of you. Because maybe God wants to use those obstacles and turn them into an opportunity. For example, an obstacle in your marriage can be an opportunity to go to a deeper level of intimacy with your spouse. Obstacles in your business can be opportunities that change the way your business is structured or change what you're doing in order to take your business to another level. Uh, obstacles in leadership can be an opportunity to solve a problem that hasn't been solved yet and to, uh, to increase your influence. I mean, COVID, just think about all the obstacles that COVID has brought over the last 15 months. Uh, just from our church's perspective, uh, of course, we wish it never happened and uh, but there's been so many things that we've learned over the past 15 months that I, I don't know if we would have learned without the obstacle. Uh, over the last 15 months, I mean, we, the amount of prayer that we've put into what we do and thought and intention involved in every single little decision, I mean, it, it would shock you how much we've thought and strategized and prayed over certain things. I'm so thankful for Pastor Rick's leadership during this past year because, I don't know if you know this, but leadership is not fun in a time of crisis. But the obstacles of the last 15 months forced us to get better at certain things. Uh, online church, and for those of you watching online, uh, this was, it was kind of an afterthought for a long time. We had a camera, so we just pressed play and put it on Facebook Live and posted the videos to our website, but it, it was never like, a, we didn't do it with a lot of intention. Well, obviously COVID forced us to pay a lot of attention to what we're doing online and to put some resources behind what we're doing. Uh, that obstacle gave us the opportunity to make it better. We've had to think of new and creative ways to engage people from their homes. We got better financially because of COVID. We got better connecting with people one-on-one -on -one because of COVID. We got better at praying for people because of COVID. 
I honestly believe we are a healthier church because of the opportunities that came by way of obstacles. Did we make every decision correctly? Probably not. But we've learned a ton along the way, and we learned maybe most of all to rely on the goodness and the faithfulness of God. So picking up where we left off in the story of Esther, uh, so Queen Vashti is gone. King Xerxes, he holds a beauty pageant to find his next wife, and Esther, the poor Jewish orphan living in a foreign land, she enters the pageant, she hides her Jewish identity, and we'll get back to that in a moment, and she wins the pageant. But here's the thing, if you read Esther 1 and Esther 2, it takes you about six minutes to read those two chapters, but in reality, this was a four-year-long process. So the second lesson from the story is this, is that opportunities widen for those who patiently prepare. Opportunities widen for those who patiently prepare. Look in verse 16. It says, she, talking about Esther, was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. So we know four years have passed at this point because in chapter 1 it says uh, when he was in his six-month drunken party, that that was the third year of his reign. And, and there's so many stories in the Bible of amazing things that happen, amazing things that God does that doesn't happen over the course of days, doesn't happen over the course of months, but it takes years or even decades to happen. Uh, it took Noah. We love the story of Noah uh, and his ark, and we can read that pretty quickly, but it actually took him 120 years to build the ark. And the story of Joseph, uh, between the time when Joseph received his dream from God and the time that the dream was actually fulfilled, it was between 20 and 27 years that passed between the dream and the dream being fulfilled. Uh, David, David who killed Goliath, uh, he was anointed as king, but he didn't actually become king for 10 years after he was anointed. I mean, even if you think about Jesus, when Jesus, the Messiah, was finally born, you would think that he would get started with his ministry right away. But he didn't start at 18 years old. He didn't start at 20 years old. He he didn't start his ministry until he was 30 years old. See, there's this common theme in the Bible of people having to wait for their promises to be fulfilled. And if we're honest, we're not so good at waiting. And it's not all our faults. I mean, we just live in an on-demand world. Uh, my parents are here this morning, and if you look it up in the GPS, they, they live 21 miles away. It would, uh, 100 years ago, that would be a full day's journey. But today, according to the GPS, it takes 36 minutes to get from their house to here. If my dad's driving, it takes 30 minutes to get there. Uh, I, I like to hunt, but I don't have to hunt my food this afternoon to eat it. We don't have to save up for a house. We just have to save up 10 or 20% for a down payment, and we finance the rest. Uh, We live in a world where we can get things relatively quickly. We live in a world of high-speed internet, overnight delivery, microwavable food, uh, instant coffee, and I I love the speed in which our world works. I I love the speed in which we can accomplish things. However, it's conditioned us to struggle with patience, hasn't it? Uh, let me remind you that God works on a different timetable than we work. He, he works with a lot more things, uh, like th- there's a lot more that goes into how he's working his plan in our lives than we 
think. So we must learn patience. And patience is not just the ability to wait. You can be forced to wait. That doesn't make you a patient person. Patience is the ability to wait with the right attitude. Now, I've known people who believe they had a calling on their life to do something. But when the doors didn't open after a year or two, they abandoned that dream or that calling. They, they thought the calling maybe wasn't real because no doors were opening. Uh, if you're ready to abandon your dream after one year, you're probably not ready for that opportunity. So what do we do in the meantime? We, we simply prepare. Look at what uh, Paul said in the book of Galatians. This is our memory verse for today. He says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. That key phrase, at the proper time. The proper time for me is usually right now, but it's a little different for God. So back to the story of Esther. So Esther, she is now the queen of Persia. Up until this point, like we said, she has kept her Jewish identity hidden. Uh, and then there's a bad guy in the story, like all good stories have. Uh, it's a man named Haman. Haman had the highest position in the kingdom, second only to the king. He was so powerful, in fact, that the Persian law said that anyone who was in Haman's presence had to kneel down before him. And Haman despised the Jews. Uh, he was offended by Mordecai at a different point, and because of that, he hated all the Jews that were living in Persia. Uh, he hated them so much that he talked King Xerxes while King Xerxes was drunk. Again, he, he was drunk a lot. He, he talked him into signing a decree that, would, that on a specific date, all the Jews living in Persia would be killed. Uh, King Xerxes ended up regretting this decision. I'm, have you ever made a decision while you're drunk that you regretted? Sinners, just kidding. So now all the Jews living in Persia was set to be killed on a specific date. Uh, this included the queen and her people. Though there is a chance that Esther could have survived because, again, her, her identity was hidden. But her entire family would have been killed, including Mordecai. Her, her people would have been killed. So with the date approaching, Esther and Mordecai try to figure out what to do. The next lesson we can learn from the story is this, is that God positions us, but we must act. God positions us. He will open doors, but we must act. I'm sure you've heard the story of the two farmers that both prayed for rain, but only one of them went out and prepared his field after he prayed for rain. And then the rain came and uh, one of the farmers thanked God for providing a crop, and the other one was like, God, why didn't you do anything? Well, he didn't prepare his field. Esther may have been the only person in all of Persia that was positioned to do something to save her people. And through the providence of God, she had been positioned in the palace. She was the queen. She had been positioned by God, but God will never force our hands. Look at what Mordecai says to Esther. I, I love this passage so much. He says to her, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. So he has faith that God will prevail somehow. But then he says, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. What a powerful phrase for such a time as this. 
Mordecai tells her, if you do nothing, we'll probably be okay. God will come through somehow. He had faith that God would come through, but there's a great lesson here. It is impossible for you and I to get in the way of God's plan, but he graciously invites us to be a part of it. Again, he had faith, and I believe that God would have come through for his people, but he invites us to be a part of the plan. So they devise a plan, Esther and Mordecai, but there's one problem with their plan. Esther and Xerxes didn't have the type of relationship or the type of marriage that we're used to seeing. Uh, It was Persian law that no one could approach the king unless the king requested your presence, and this applied even to the queen. So the king would have to hold out his scepter, inviting you into his presence. And the problem is, and the text tells us, that uh, Xerxes hadn't requested Queen Esther in over 30 days. And time was running out. But Esther, she is strong and she's courageous. Look at this in verse 16. She says, And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I die, I must die. Another translation says, if I perish, then I perish. I mean, that is strength and courage. So Esther, she goes to the king, a a huge gamble. Again, it it was Persian law where if you broke this command, or if you broke this law, it was up to the king, but the king could have you sentenced to death instantly. So she gambles, she goes to see the king, it pays off, he extends his scepter, and he says, he he tells Esther, he said, I will give you whatever you want. He shows her favor. He says, I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. The next lesson we can learn from the story is that opportunities from God are always bigger than you. Think about this for a moment. Esther didn't have a whole lot going for her growing up. She was an orphan living in exile. But God had shown tremendous favor. Esther is now queen. She is comfortable. The king has told her she... He said, you can have anything in my kingdom. Up to half of the kingdom is yours. Uh, Can I tell you what I'm guilty of sometimes? Sometimes believing that God blesses me for my comfort. That he's blessing me just for the sake of blessing me. And sure, there are times where he will bless us for the sake of blessing us because he loves us. He is a good father and he, he wants us to experience joy. But more times than not, God blesses us or positions us, or opens up doors for reasons far beyond us. For Esther, it would have been so easy to think that God had blessed her just to bless her, that God was making up for all the hard times she had as a young girl, and now he was just, uh, he was just giving back to her what she missed out on. It would have been easy for her to think that this, this whole problem with Haman wanting to kill the Jews was not her problem to solve. It would have been so easy for her to think when the king was saying, you can have anything in my kingdom you want, for her to think that this was an opportunity to increase her comfort. I, I remember one time I, I had a friend who handed me a $50 bill. They said, I, I don't know why, but when I was praying, I felt God telling me to give this to you. And I was a little confused in the moment because we weren't in a position of need. Uh, we, we, were, we felt blessed. Our bills were paid. Uh, we had some money in savings. So I was a little confused at why God would prompt 
this person to give us $50. Uh, it was confusing, but I, I didn't want to get in the way of uh, their obedience, their step of obedience to God. So I, I accepted the gift. And later that same day, uh, my sister came over. She had just recently moved back to New York. She was living out of state. Uh, she started a new job and had a new apartment. And we were just talking, and she was telling me how she was a little stressed out because uh, she didn't get paid until later that week, and there were some things she still had to buy, uh, just some last-minute grocery stuff. And I just I reach in my pocket, and I pull out that $50 that my friend had given me earlier that day. And I realized in that moment, the $50 wasn't for me. It was for her. But my sister didn't know the friend who had given it to me. God was just using me as a vehicle to get the gift to her. It would have been easy for me to think, okay, God just wants me to go buy another set of golf balls or something like that, which I, I might have. But God was using me and wanting to use me as a vehicle to bless someone else. See, many times God does not just bless us just to bless us. He blesses us so we can be a blessing to others. He doesn't just promote us so we can be on the top of the mountain. He brings us on the top of the mountain so we can pull someone else up with us. He doesn't give us influence so we can say whatever we want. He gives us influence so we can speak encouragement and life and truth to others. And Queen Esther, on a much larger scale, believed that God wanted to use her as a vehicle to save the Jews. Would he have saved them without Esther? I believe he would have. But he was inviting Esther and opening up doors for Esther to be a part of this unbelievable story. So in verses 7 and 8, we see a little bit of the ending. And again, read the story for yourself because there's so many more details in here. But verses 7 and 8, it says, Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I have given Esther the property of Haman, and he has been impaled on a pole. Not good for Haman, right? <laughs> Uh, because he tried to destroy the Jews. There's, there's so much irony in that, by the way. So much irony in what happened to uh, Haman that this is exactly what he was going to do to Mordecai. And again, read the story for yourself. It continues. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want and seal it with the king's signet ring. So he's telling them, you, you can save the Jews. Do whatever, tell them whatever you want to do. You have my blessing. Not only is Haman demoted, but he receives the same fate that he tried to impart on the people he was trying to kill. God chooses to bless and position Esther, not for herself, but for her people. See, in many ways in the story, Esther is a picture of Jesus. She didn't sacrifice herself, but she was willing to sacrifice herself to go out on a limb to save her people. Now, the last lesson I want to talk about briefly is this, is when God seems absent, he's still at work. So there's one really interesting thing in this story. Uh, the, the whole book of Esther, God is not mentioned a single time. In fact, this is the only book in the Bible that God is not mentioned and that when you first read it, it might seem confusing. Like, why is this story in the Bible if God is not even in it? You could read this book and think God has abandoned his people. He seems absent. His people are in exile. And I think that's a little relatable for us sometimes. Have you ever felt like God is absent in your circumstances? I know I have. 
I heard a story from January 2018 of two, uh, two women who were flying from Miami to Mexico for a wedding. And while they were in Mexico, they were involved in a car accident. And one of these women uh, was very seriously injured. She was in a coma for 10 days and she needed a blood transfusion. She had a very rare blood type. So people from her church in Miami started flying to Mexico to donate blood so that she can get her blood transfusion and have her surgery. Well, right after the blood transfusion, uh, there was another car accident. A baby girl was rushed to the very same hospital. This baby girl also needed a blood transfusion, but the only problem was is that this baby had a rare blood type. She just happened to have the same blood type as the woman from Miami who had all these friends flying from Miami to Mexico to donate blood, and now they have a, an abundance of supply of this rare blood type, a type they wouldn't have had otherwise. Two people were saved in the hospital that day. Two people made full recoveries. See, at the moment, God may have seemed completely absent. I mean, think about the family members of the girl from Miami just trying to wrap their heads around what was happening. Why would God allow this to happen? Do I think God caused those accidents? No. But I do believe he used the circumstances in ways that we may never understand. And this is one of the few times where we get to hear the end of the story. But there are times that happen all the time where we, God is working in the background. We may never hear the happy ending, but God is always working. God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, but his fingerprints are all over it. His providence is evident through every single chapter. See, I believe when God is absent or seems absent in our lives that he is still working. And I just want to encourage you today. I believe there's some in the room or some watching online that you feel like God is absent right now. Whatever you're going through, you feel like he's just, he's not there for you. He's not answering prayers. I just want to encourage you that I believe he is working. We may never see it on this side of heaven, all the intricacies of how he's working, but I believe that he is working in the background. When God seems absent, he is still there. And we have a promise that he will be there for us. He will be there with us. He may not answer every prayer exactly how we want him to answer it, but he is always working. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for stories like this in the Bible, stories of bravery and courage. God, let these inspire us. Let these teach us new ways to serve you and to be obedient to you. God, I thank you for all the times that it seems like you're absent, God, knowing that you are still there for us, that you are still working in the background. God, I pray that that would encourage us today, that we can always remember that you are there. You love us. And your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God, let us never forget that. And we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.